brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the, God, of the grace God gave to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except that Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the powers of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, uh, hello again, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open, uh, that uh, passage. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you're the God who speaks that you speak to us in your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that illuminates that word so that we can change to become more like Jesus. And we pray that that's exactly what you do uh, for us uh, now at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest Christian missionaries to ever live was a man by the name of James Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor spent 51 years doing mission work in China and founded an organisation called the China Inland Mission, CIM, which later became OMF, uh, Overseas uh, Missionary Fellowship International. Unlike other British missionaries of his time, Taylor chose to dress in native Chinese clothing and he ensured that the organisation he founded employed people from the working class as well as single women and people from different countries. His work resulted in the development of 125 schools in China, as well as 18,000, from what we know, direct converts, and therefore countless thousands, indirect converts. 
Uh, The historian Ruth Tucker said about him, and the quote will be on your screen, no other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and has carried out a more systematized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. At some point, Hudson Taylor began an annual ritual that he kept up, as far as I can work out, until his death. It's a tiny little thing, but one that tells us so much about his theology of mission. Once a year, Hudson Taylor would put a check in an envelope and send or hand it, as the case may be, to a small mission organisation in London. On the envelope, he would write a total of four words. The head of that London mission organisation, upon receiving Hudson Taylor's cheque, in turn put a cheque for the same amount in an envelope and wrote five words and sent it back. This little ritual, I believe, gives a huge insight into his theology of mission, which resulted in such effective work in China. What was the mission organisation and what were the four words he wrote, and what were the five words he received back with an equal check? Naturally, I'm going to hold off giving you the answer. Not just because I'm mildly sadistic and juvenile, but also because in today's passage, we're learning from the Apostle Paul about his theology of mission, and it's as we come and learn and understand Paul's theology of mission that will be better placed to understand and appreciate Hudson Taylor's little yet highly significant annual ritual. For the church in Rome, Paul was certain that genuine, effective gospel mission had happened. Verse 14, he says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. And that's a very New Testament way of saying these guys are converted and growing. The only way a group of people can be filled with goodness and knowledge to strengthen one another is by the work of God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit brings people to repentance and faith in Jesus as the gospel message is heard and responded to with faith. So in one sense, Paul didn't need to write to God's church in Rome. And yet, he did have to write to them because of the particular role that God had given him. Verse 15, yet, he says, I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul doesn't say he writes to the Roman church because they needed correcting or educating That's something that's always true of all churches and all Christians. And of course, there are always specific issues unique to certain churches that need to be addressed boldly. I'm sure Paul is doing that in Romans, but his emphasis here is on his role as the reason for teaching the Roman church rather than their need, real as it may be, for bold teaching. 
The Spirit and the Scriptures are sufficient for establishing and building God's church. But because Paul is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with a priestly duty, he says, and because he has the specific task of ensuring that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, that's the reason he dares to teach the Roman church despite the sufficiency of what they already have. And so the right question to ask then is, what is Paul's specific role and why is he telling us about it? What does he mean by saying he has a priestly duty to present Gentiles as acceptable offerings to God? Well, given that these Romans are filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another, I think it's likely they'd recognise that Paul here is deliberately and clearly using language of the prophet Isaiah when he wrote about God's plans for the last days. But I suspect that uh, for us, we're not as familiar with our Old Testaments as the Roman church were, so I'm going to give us all a very quick crash course on what God has taught about the last days through his prophet Isaiah, so we can appreciate uh, Paul's language here. So here we go. Long after the great reigns of uh, King David and Solomon, Israel's history became pretty woeful. They were somehow often at the bottom of the heap. The other powerful nations kept conquering them, and as a result, Israel often had to pay tributes to foreign rulers and their gods. But rather than Israel give begrudging offerings to the gods of the nations, Isaiah prophesied that the day would come when Yahweh's mountain, God's mountain, would be lifted high above all the others and people from all nations would flock to Jerusalem willingly and give tribute to Israel's God. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 2, we read, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple, Yahweh's temple, will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And whenever God would finally establish his great rule in Jerusalem, his own chosen people, no matter where they might be scattered or in captivity, well, they would need to hear about it. And so God would use a special messenger, a servant, whose job it would be to announce the good news to the poor, that is, to Israel in her oppression. So, for example, in chapter 61, we read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. But as we know, God wouldn't reinstate just his own people, the servant would also need to bring the good news to the nations. And not just to the nations, but even the kings and the rulers of those nations. And so Isaiah 49, the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant and to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, he says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and Bring those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. This is what the Lord says. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And this servant who would do all of this 
would be a representative of the true Israel. In fact, he'd be the one who fulfills what we might call the vocation of Israel. The thing that under God was their major purpose. God promised that through the descendants of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, blessing would come to all the families of the earth. But in order for anyone to approach the holy God, they needed to be made holy, which in Israel was the work of the priests. So Israel, you might say, had a priestly duty to the nations. And therefore, God's representative Israelite servant would be someone who conducts a priestly ministry, sanctifying the Gentiles as they come, bringing their tributes to Israel's God. So from Isaiah 61 and 66, and you will be called priests of the Lord, you will be named ministers, note priests and ministers of our God, you will feed on the wealth of the nations and in their riches you will boast, and then in 66, they will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord, bringing people as an offering to the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. Now, of course, you and I know that God has established his rule in Israel ever since the day Jesus, God's chosen king, was raised up and seated at God's right hand. Of course, Jesus is also Israel's great high priest. He gave himself as the one perfect sacrifice for sin, and his blood sprinkles all, Jew and Gentile, who put their faith in him. He's the great capital S, servant of Isaiah. And yet, Jesus chose to extend and continually fulfill his ministry through his chosen instrument, the Apostle Paul. Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord, and he now sends his priestly minister, the servant, Paul, to continue his work. That's why when Jesus commissioned Paul, he said about him, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, that is nations, and their kings and to the people of Israel. So back to our passage, Paul has identified himself as the servant of the Lord from Isaiah, through whom Jesus is extending his ministry by bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom of Israel's God. And the way Paul does that, the way he sanctifies Gentiles and makes them an acceptable offering, is by proclaiming and testifying to the gospel of Jesus. Verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. And so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. That phrase there, all the way around, in the original language, uses the word for circle. Uh, Paul's missionary journey, if you map it, is anything but. But in Paul's mind, you see, Jerusalem is where God's mountain was established and the gospel goes out in ever-broadening circles, so to speak. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
Now, why on earth is Paul telling the Romans this stuff? Well, remember over the last few weeks, he's been emphasising the importance of the strong, prioritising unity over arguments on non-essentials. It's likely, uh, as Gavin Jono pointed out, that the strong were probably Gentiles who knew they could eat anything, which might have been a stumbling block to the Christian Jews who found it hard to eat unkosher food. Reminding this predominantly Gentile church that salvation comes from Israel's God through the priestly ministry of Israel's servant, that ought to give them pause should they be tempted to look down on their Jewish brethren. But another reason Paul is informing them of his priestly ministry to the Gentiles is to explain why he has been so bold as to only write to them rather than actually visit them in person. Verse 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, and what do you know, it's from Isaiah again, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard him will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Basically, he's saying that he has a duty to preach the gospel to Gentiles and has to fulfill that duty rather than visit a place where the gospel has already taken root. Even though Rome is the capital of the ancient world, Paul chose, up to this point at least, to take the bold option of merely writing to them rather than visiting in person. As he said all the way back in chapter 1, he's obligated not just to the learned Greeks of Rome, but also the crude barbarians in the outer regions. In the course of broadening his circle of gospel proclamation and going as far out as Spain, Paul will soon have the opportunity to pass through Rome and visit the church there. But there'll be one more delay, one more delay still, a delay made necessary by another aspect of his priestly ministry. If you remember from Isaiah, the servant of the Lord would also see the nations bringing their wealth or their tribute to Israel's God. And so verse 25, now, however, he says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there, i.e. the Jews. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. So here we have an example of a predominantly, uh, predominantly Gentile churches, Macedonia and Archaea, gladly and willingly offering tribute to Israel's God by way of upkeep for his priestly nation from whom the gospel originated. They're giving a gift to brothers in Christ whom they've benefited from spiritually and simultaneously, therefore, are fulfilling the kind of thing that Isaiah was looking forward to. Such an act would likely be perceived as an expression of ministry partnership and also confirmation that the gospel these churches are holding to is the gospel that has come from Paul and Jesus' other apostles rather than from some untrustworthy source. 
Paul is confident that the Jerusalem church will see it this way. He finishes the section by saying, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ, which in the context I think means that the Jerusalem church will thoroughly endorse Paul's work of bringing the good news out to the nations, just as they will endorse the good work of the nations bringing their tribute to Israel's God. You might say they will give him the right hand of fellowship. This, in turn, would be further confirmation that Jesus is the Christ who has ushered in the last days and their accompanying activity. Now, the Romans themselves would have opportunity to show their solidarity with the people of Israel by way of a material expression of gratitude to Israel's God. At the beginning of the next chapter, which, of course, we're going to look at next week, Paul tells them that a deacon named Phoebe will be coming to visit them. Interestingly, he instructs them to, quote, receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, and literally it is worthy of his holy people, his saints, his Jerusalem Christians, and to give her any help she may need from you. Now, for us here and now, Grace Anglican, as a predominantly Gentile church, We'd actually be right to ask the question how we demonstrate our indebtedness to the spiritual benefit we've received from Israel's God and and, and Israel's servant. It's not like we've still got some mother church in Jerusalem from whom we host mission workers. I think it's a broader discussion for another time and I'm not sure there's actually a clear-cut answer. But interestingly, Hudson Taylor exercised one such expression of gratitude via material blessing when he did his little annual ritual. The mission organisation that he gave a cheque to was the, I don't know if you say Mildmay or Mildmay, I need Anne Dillon to tell me this, the Mildmay mission to the Jews. The four words he wrote on the envelope were from Romans 1.16, to the Jew first. The head of the Mildmay mission to the Jews was a man named John Wilkinson, who was a good friend of Hudson Taylor, he was the one who wrote on the return envelope with a cheque for an equal amount. His five words were also from Romans 1.16 and also for the Gentile. Mrs Taylor, Hudson's wife, would write in one of her memoirs, this helpful interchange of sympathy was kept up ever after, the only change being that each doubled the amount of their contribution. Hudson Taylor recognised that the gospel he proclaimed in China was the gospel that originated with Israel's King Jesus, had been disseminated by God's priestly servant Paul and ought to result in Gentiles honouring Israel's God, Yahweh. One of the means by which he did that was literally sharing material wealth with an organisation designed to benefit Jews by telling them about their own Messiah. This demonstrates that Hudson Taylor's theology of mission was not pragmatic. It was rooted deeply and squarely in the word of God, especially the teaching of Paul. The fact he was fruitful could not have been more important than the fact he was faithful. Now, as I said before, I'm not sure the way Gentile churches nowadays should demonstrate gratitude for the spiritual blessing of the Jews by material means. What I am sure of, though, is that 
because the gospel has come to us, we now have a partnership in Israel's vocation. And so Paul writes, verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, what a wonderful phrase, by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judah, because they normally want to stone him, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Which ought to be the end of Romans, but Paul has a very important PS that goes for a whole chapter. You see, Paul doesn't see his work ending simply by bringing Gentiles as offerings to the God of Israel. Along with him, they are equally brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're invited to join in his struggle by prayer, as the case is here, and also by practical means, as the case is in chapter 16. More than that, we know from elsewhere that he wants his Gentile converts to join in with the priestly ministry of Israel's vocation. When Paul wrote to another predominantly Gentile church in Thessalonica, he commended them for being as spectacular as the, the, the pin-up churches of Macedonia and Archaea, not because of any gift to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, but because the Lord's message rang out from them. In fact, one of the big reasons I'm convinced Paul is teaching us his theology of mission to the Romans and therefore to us is so that they and we see that to embrace the gospel is to partner in God's mission from Israel to the nations. You can't separate those two things practically. To embrace the gospel is to become a partner in Israel's mission, in God's mission. The God who saved us and who sanctified us through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the God who wants us to join his great servant, not only the Apostle Paul, but Jesus himself. And in seeing more and more people honour the God of Israel by coming to the obedience of faith in his Messiah. So here's where the rubber finally hits the road for us. Um, firstly, if you're a Gentile that is a non-Jew, and if you've heard of the good news that Jesus is now the risen Lord and all people who trust in him are made acceptable to the true and living God, then what is your tribute? What is your offering to Israel's God? Hopefully you're a bit nervous as I say that because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we don't make any offering to God to, to merit his favour. Nothing in my hand I bring. No amount of good works or being religious or doing penance would ever be good enough. It's Jesus and his blood alone that makes us perpetually the beloved, sanctified children of God. And yet, there is a rightness about speaking of an offering to God in the sense that we offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, God's love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. The way you pay tribute to the God of Israel who has saved you by the blood of Christ is by giving over 
every single area of your life to his will, to his service. Your time, your money, your choices, your relationships, all of them need to come under the loving and perfect rule of God. And I can assure you from my own experience that giving your life to Christ is far more satisfying than keeping it for yourself. Pray to God today, Lord, if there are areas in my life which I keep back from submitting to your loving fatherly rule, please enable me to repent. Secondly, one of the ways you can be sure that someone has embraced the true gospel, the the gospel that came through Israel's priestly servant, who Jesus himself commissioned, is that they are keen to obey the teachings of Paul. Hopefully I'm speaking to the choir here, but occasionally I do, and you may, hear of Christians saying that they are okay with the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. But because Paul isn't the infallible God the Son, it's okay to dismiss some of what he says. I'm scared when I hear something like that. I'm literally concerned for their soul. To reject the Spirit's inspired teaching from Israel's priestly minister, Jesus' chosen servant, is in the end to reject the teaching of the Son of God. If Paul says, I insist on this in the Lord, then whatever comes next, where to insist upon? If Paul says, I do not permit, then whatever he does not permit, we must not permit. Sadly, there will only ever always be people who betray their hardness of heart by their insistence that obedience to Paul's teaching is optional. Finally, the priestly ministers of Israel, the apostles, are obviously no longer with us, neither is Paul, but their teaching remains. We have all we need to be sanctified and live as an acceptable offering to Israel's God in his word, the Bible. The same spirit at work in them, at work in the Romans, is now at work in us. Uh, If you look at the history of revivals in God's kingdom, it almost never has to do with a bunch of people spending time thinking about how they can uh, do evangelistic programs and methods. It almost always has to do with a bunch of people spending time thinking about how they can seriously and joyfully obey the teaching of scriptures, how personal godliness and faithfulness can become a great priority in their lives. Great damage gets done when the focus on mission becomes a reason to overlook personal godliness and loving relationships. Books on mission and evangelism have their place, but the word of God alone is our source for genuine growth in holiness and faithfulness. And faithfulness always gets more focus than fruitfulness, even for great missionaries like Hudson Taylor. Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your priestly servant, the Apostle Paul, who through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ sprinkled not only your people but also nations down to us and that we can therefore be acceptable offerings to the true and living God of Israel. Father, we pray that uh, by the power of your spirit at work within us, if there are areas of our lives that are not given over as tribute to Israel's God, that you would enable us to repent that we would give him our lives, our souls, our alls, for it's far better to live under the rule of Jesus than to live under self-rule. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.